You are listening to the new episode of In Love With The Process. I am your host, Mike Petchy. How are you? What's new? Today, I am recording remotely from sunny Cape Cod, Massachusetts, surrounded by lush greenery and chirping birds. Day one of my summer vacation, but being a workaholic, I of course have to record an episode. Uh, Gene and I are staying the week with my parents, who are not only gracious hosts, but some of our favorite people to hang out with. If you have ever been on the sets of any of my films, you know that my parents are usually there hanging out. They're actually a really important part of my filmmaking process. Um, They've always been very supportive of my art and nurturing my crazy ideas with love, support, and inspiration. So that leads me to my guest today, which I've been trying to get on for quite some time. Uh, My guest today is none other than my infamous mother, Eileen. You can say hello. Hi. <laughs> uh, she has been a member of uh, my crew on my photo shoots, on film sets, um, and even helped at uh, weird uh, comic book convention tables. Yes, I remember that. <laughs> All your creepy fans. Uh, so growing up, she was always the photographer in the family, taking some amazing portraits of her four kids that were easily publishing quality. Um, I might give her credit for my interest in photography, but then why would I give her any credit for that? (laughs) That's right. It's always dad. Uh, Those of you who are longtime fans of my work may know her from her infamous momentary track on my old Grindhouse DVDs. Um, She is known for speaking her mind and for her love of talking to people. So you guys know the deal. Turn up your volume. Ignore those people on the bus as you travel to work. Sit back and relax. The new episode of In Love With The Process. So, hi. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Mm. I'm doing the worst thing ever and I'm drinking when I'm supposed to be talking. (laughs) You're drinking water. Yes. Yeah, it's the water. It's morning. It's still morning time. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been, uh, we've been talking about getting you on the show for a while now and you finally said yes to it, right? Wasn't that the deal? Yes, that's the deal. Um, your father doesn't trust me recording or doing anything with you anymore. He gave me a look last night because I said, uh, oh yeah, I'm going to do a podcast with mom. He goes, uh huh. Yes. He was not happy with the mom, you Terry. <laughs> he wasn't happy at all. Well, it's very, we're doing very PG stuff today. Oh, good. That's good. Yeah, we'll be very PG with everything. It'll be boring, but it will be good. <laughs> well, what I want to do on this episode, what I've been doing lately has been talking about how uh, your art and your 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 work is actually influenced by your life, basically, and influenced by the people that are in your life, influenced by your upbringing and all that. And I figured that I would give folks sort of a inside look into where I come from and and then maybe it makes sense when you look at my movies. Maybe it does. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So if, if you look around, so we're staying at this really great place down here in the Cape. And if you look around the house, there, the walls are pretty much covered with uh, mostly dad's painting stuff. Yes. Well, he is a type A person. Yes. But if you happen to go upstairs, uh, there's a room dedicated to your photography of us growing up, correct? Yeah, the bathroom. <laughs> Why did you choose the bathroom for, as your showcase? Because I knew that was the one room your father couldn't hang a painting in. 
with the steam from the shower. <laughs> uh, so if you go up there, you'll see uh, these portraits of like young kids that you, I don't know how you did it because you didn't have any formal photography training, right? No. Um, I, years ago when I was a child, um, my father always took pictures and stuff, but he was a very temperamental photographer. He was the type of photographer that he would load the film wrong in the camera and would be at the zoo or somewhere, and all of a sudden he'd be swearing like the Tasmanian <laughs> devil and ripping film out of a camera. Or he, you know, got a movie camera and made us march down the stairs like 15 times Christmas morning till he got it right. <laughs> and then found out the dog ate all the Christmas cookies and pooped and threw up in the bathroom and was screaming like the Tasmanian devil again. But I was given a swinger camera, a Polaroid swinger, black and white film and for Christmas one year. And I started taking photos. And uh, my brother is 10 years younger than me, so he was probably four years old. And I found him a fascinating subject. And friends were over with their daughter, who was around the same age, and she was a tough-looking little girl. And the two of them, I wanted to take their picture, and I said, you know, just get together. And they threw their arms around each other, and I got down on my knees, and I took the photo. And they looked kind of like Wizard of Oz characters, you know, the munchkins. They had that kind of expression <laughs> on their face. And it ended up being an interesting photo, and from that moment on, I was hooked. And so uh, a lot of the stuff that, you, that, that I would say that you're known for, known for meaning the stuff I think I like the most, is your close-up portraits. Are you, have you always been focused on faces? Like, what do you like to shoot when you take photographs? Well, I'm not interested in scenery. I find scenery really boring. You know, and I think that most people can take a good photo of scenery. I'm very interested in people and... I like getting as close as I can. I like capturing kind of their soul or their spirit in their face. And I like doing it when they least expect it. I don't like to line people up and say cheese and smile. Um, I have a really nice photo of your brother, Brian. He was out in the backyard in Framingham, and he was probably around four. And he was playing in the dirt, and he was covered in dirt. And I had just started to use black and white film again, and I took a snapshot of him real close, real fast, and he looked like he came from a war-torn country, and his eyes were open really wide, and that I find interesting. It's a great shot, and, and when you look at it technically, you sit there, and it's such a, the focus is so incredibly tight, you would think that you spent a long time just sort of situating that shot to get that focus perfect because he's like the right amount of focus and he's looking in the camera and it's very shallow depth of field but you just snapped that one off right it was right that it's i i found you fascinating subjects i mean to photograph especially when you're young because children are very free very open and unless you pose them and make them feel uncomfortable in front of a camera they're pretty relaxed so I would see things that I thought were interesting, um, probably a bad mom, but Eileen <laughs> and Brian are 11 months apart and they shared a room with two cribs and they were both crying after nap and I went up and I could see the tears coming down their face and I ran down and didn't console them or anything, ran down and got my camera and took a really good photo of the both of them. 
<laughs> and then I got him out of the crib. <laughs> Perfect. Keep crying. <laughs> well, the tears were just like stuck on their cheeks, like somebody had put them on there, and they they had this little hopeless expressions on their face. And I thought, wow, this is going to make a great photo. <laughs> So you were all my subjects, whether you wanted to be or not. And I think you got used to me always like picking up the camera. And I always took really fast shots to the point where you you didn't feel uncomfortable. Right, right. And I learned that from my father who made us all feel very uncomfortable taking pictures. And I'm not big on posed photos. I'm not big on, you know, getting people together and doing that kind of stuff. I like capturing people when they are being their true self and they're interesting looking. Right, 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 right. I mean, because, you know, the 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 traditional way of taking photographs for any sort of family is the whole, okay, everybody look, and then the mm-hmm. whole, and sometimes, you know, we'll be at, I won't name names, but we'll be at certain events yeah, we during have Christmas. Peop- where yeah, they- we have uh, in-laws in the family that do that. Yeah. And their kids grew up saying cheese constantly, so they have this expression on their face that looks like not really nice, I won't say, but... <laughs> We're not talking on it, but it's just a different type of, uh, uh, it's a different style. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. And it usually, as kids, we were usually really annoyed because we're getting pulled away from doing what it is we wanted to well, do. Well, your dad is more a uh, traditionalist. I'm not. I'm not a traditionalist. Your father is, if you look at his paintings, all of his stuff is very traditional. And I'm not traditional. So when we had holidays, he felt the need to corral all of you kids together and have me take shots of you. <laughs> Yes. And, I, and I would be so annoyed, but I would take them. And they were never, ever great shots. So, because I, again, I flash back to my father, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. So, um, so that, that also leads me to, uh, you know, being a mom and growing up around here because you were a full time mom for us. Like, there's four kids in the family. So it was me and, and three, three others, right? Two boys, two girls. Yes. Uh, and then how old were you when you had me? I was your first, right? Yeah, I got married at 25 and I was not having any children. <laughs> <laughs> Strong will here. And your dad had a vision of the house and the white picket fence and he wanted children. So I thought, okay, we can have one. That would be fine. We'll just have one. And if it's a girl, I'll be really happy. Well, it wasn't a girl. No, no. It was the most, you gave birth to the most macho boy possible. Oh my God, you were horrible. (laughs) And your dad was so happy. He was so ecstatic. Probably today they would think I had postpartum depression or something because in the delivery room, I, instead of being happy and here's this lovely baby, I said to your dad, I hope you're happy. You got your boy. (laughs) <laughs> and it kind of hushed in the room, and I realized, whoops, maybe I shouldn't have said that. So then you had the first one, and then it just kept happening because we were pretty close, right? So, yeah, well, I wanted a girl. So that's when Laura came. And then dad said, why don't we just have three? And I said, all right, fine. I'm already home. We had decided that I would stay home and raise everyone. And Brian came along, and then your younger sister was a surprise. Mm-hmm. There's only 11 months between the two of them, and they call them Irish twins. And they were two totally different personalities. I mean, 
you and Laura went off to school and I had them at home because they were younger and they were like this little old married couple. Eileen was happy and cheerful and Brian was like, it's going to rain out. He was Mr. Down in the dumps. So I had the little bickering <laughs> in the background. So uh, you also, that leads me to another one of my questions here. Not even, it's kind of a statement. You uh, decided that you're going to be a stay-at-home mom and you worked with us. And I have had people ask me in the past, like, what do your parents do for work? And I'm like, well, you know, my dad, you know, he works in a bank, he does all that. And then my mom had the hardest job of all. She was a stay-at-home mom, which basically meant that you were working 24 hours a day for how many years at that point? Like, well, till you all left. Yeah. You know, um, it was, it was hard because you want time to yourself and you try to plan something for yourself and then you have four kids and inevitably somebody gets sick somebody has to go here and you find that you put yourself on the very bottom of the list you know so and then as you get older especially as a woman and you start thinking about your life you start thinking oh my god I really didn't do anything with my life you know I spent all this time at home and at one point, we had two homes. We had a home in Framingham, and we had this house on the Cape, and we were going back and forth. I spent all the summers with you. Your dad commuted from work on the weekends, and his great idea, no television. <laughs> so I had to become really inventive. Um, we got into game playing and stuff like that, and now I look back at the age I am now, and I think, what a wonderful experience I got to have. How often do you get to spend all this time with four uniquely different individuals? And because you've had all this time with them, they're now, as adults, your friends. They actually want to be around me, and I'm kind of surprised, but it's nice. It must have been a really weird and surreal thing to have like this creature basically come out of you and then watch it go through all these different transformations. Well, you were a very, very difficult baby. I'm surprised I had any more children. Um, you ended up having colic and allergies. You ended up being very, very sick in and out of the hospital. You were in pain and screaming all the time as an infant. So that was like a trial by fire. Mm -hmm. So every other child that came afterwards was easier and easier because none of them had your health issues. But... Yeah, it is. It is. All of a sudden you find yourself pregnant and you have this thing growing inside of you and you're excited, but you're nervous. And then, you know, you go home and there's no rule book. You read all this. Back then you read Dr. Spock and all these different books and you go home with this baby, especially you being having so many issues and that you become insecure. You have lack of sleep. You think, oh, what am I doing? What's happening? You know, is this what my life is going to be like from now on with this demanding, screaming child? Mm -hmm. You know, and you have sympathy and empathy for your child, but at the same time, how much can you take before you break? Right. You right. know, people are very judgmental on women that snap and do something to their kids, and they say, how, how, can, you, how can they be a mother and do that? Well, if you're not mentally secure to begin with, to put yourself in the position where you're almost like a prisoner 
You go home, you have a baby, if you're breastfeeding, the baby's with you all the time, you're up every two hours, you're washing laundry, you're changing diapers, you're washing bottles, you, you know, you're trying to have a life, and if you're not mentally prepared for that, there will be problems. One thing I was thinking about recently was that, at least for the first 15, 16 years of my life, the... Our family unit was pretty much what every day was. I mean, I had some friends in high school, but we lived on a street that was a busy street that didn't have a lot of kids. And then it would be, you'd go to school. Every once in a while, you might hang out with your friend, but most of the time it was come home and and be part of the family unit. It was almost like a little commune. <laughs> well, no, what happened was because we had the second, this house we're living in now is, is year round. Every opportunity that we could get away, your dad wanted to come down here. Right. So usually when you're hanging out with friends, it's on weekends and stuff. And we'd be down here. Right. Down on weekends, I remember. And, and you were a little antisocial as a child. I remember when we first got here, uh, there was a knock on the front door. Mm-hmm. And there was this boy there about a little younger than you. And he said to me, I hear you. I hear there's a, you have a son in here, and that he's my age, and I'd like to play with him. And I called you over to the door, and I said, and I, the boy's name was Jamie, and I said, Jamie would like to play. Why don't you go out? And you said, No, I don't want to go out with him. And I took you by the back of the shirt and pushed you out the door and shut and locked the door behind you and said, Yeah, you're gonna play. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> and then you guys became fast friends. Yes, I do remember that. You were very, very attached to your father when you were young. You had to do everything your dad did. You had your little work boots and your flannel shirt like your dad, and you had the fake belt with the plastic tools. You would run into the bedroom at 5 o'clock in the morning and the weekends, and what are we doing today, Daddy? What are we doing? Let's go. Let's go. Uh Uh-huh. I remember. You were, you know, he was your friend. You didn't care about anybody else. In fact, I was just here to serve you. <laughs> well, that changed as I got older, though, because I was the oldest in the family, and then I ended up becoming your basically your second in command. Well, first. With chores, with chores and, and taking care of the brothers and sisters and doing all that kind of stuff. So you and I almost were partners in crime for yeah, quite when you, some time. Yeah, when you were younger, you were very um, attached to your dad, very opinionated on what women could and couldn't do. You told your sister, Laura, I went up to get her from her nap and she was standing on her little youth bed crying. And I said, what's the matter? And she said, I can't get out of the bed. Michael told me there's alligators living under my bed. (laughs) And he also told me that the only things I can be in life, mom, is a ballerina or a mother. That (laughs) (laughs) That began the years of... A feminist uh, oppression <laughs> that, that I happened. think if your father could go back in time and put his hand over your mouth, he would have. <laughs> yes, I had no idea what I was saying. I was the dumbest kid ever because then I just got beat, beat, beat. <laughs> well, because then you didn't stop. I remember trying. I used to light the charcoal grill in the backyard and you came out and you were little work brokes and everything and your father was coming home from work and asked me to get the grill growing and you came out and said, women can't do that. <laughs> What a dumbass. <laughs> and unfortunately, it didn't light, so that didn't make it any better. And then there was the other incident where your aunt took you for a walk, and you insisted that she take you home because 
a woman drove by in a van and she could have run over you. <laughs> How old was I? <laughs> you were like five. Where did I hear all that stuff? I don't know. I think it's some kind of genetic thing in the Italian side of the family. <laughs> because I grew up in a matriarchal family. So obviously it's your dad's side of the family. <laughs> well, you didn't let it last for very long. No, every time you slipped up, you got the lecture. And your father would roll his eyes and look like he wanted to kill you. <laughs> I would say to him, Michael, women can do everything men can do, and most of the time, a lot better. <laughs> well, the other thing I got from you is that we both have very twisted senses of humor, especially if it comes to injuries. <laughs> I think the two of us, if someone hurts themselves, we're usually the two that are chuckling in the corner. It's not that we don't feel bad no. for the person. <laughs> it's just like a comedy. You know, it's like, oh my God. Oh, there was this incident with your sister and I did hold back. I was laughing inside. She had gone to the pond swimming here. Mm -hmm. She came back with her little girlfriend, and she was probably, I don't know, sick. She was down with the girl and her mother. She was making herself a little peanut butter jelly sandwich. She was always happy. She had real curly hair, and she's da-da-da-da-da in the kitchen, and I look over. <laughs> and as I said it, I realized what it was. I said, what is on your hand? It was a leech. <laughs> and she looked down, and it was between her thumb and index finger and that little thin part of the flesh attached. And she screamed and fell down to the floor. And Brian came in, and he said, what's the big deal? It's just a leech. You know, I got it off of her, and she's crying. And, and what the leeches do is they thin out your blood. So once I pulled this thing off, her hand bled like crazy, you know, and I, I thought it was really funny because the next week Brian came in and he had a splinter in his hand. And when I tried to take it out, he, um, just about passed out, <laughs> but his sister with the leech, no big deal. He's a big, tough guy. <laughs> yes. Well, whenever I'm, whenever I'm, uh, coming up with ideas or writing stories, I always, especially if there are kids involved, I always go back and think about growing up because we had so many really surreal uh adventures i don't know if you remember the one where we at one point we had the basement under construction right oh that story yeah tell oh us that story <laughs> i'm again the bad mother syndrome <laughs> i guess i know i have a twisted mind obviously and raising four kids could be boring at times it could be monotonous and so i things would pop into my head all of a sudden and they were, we had two basements that were being renovated. And one, they were putting a bar in and a pool table, and which was for the adults. And then there was the other family room that had, was, had big couches and the TV for the kids. And I didn't want Eileen and Brian going in and out of the bar area. There was a little fridge and everything. So I told them, you know, never to go down there and don't open that door. Know, how old were they at this point? Oh, they were probably four and five. So they, they were like these little tykes. Yes, with... you could just see the top of their heads over the pool table. <laughs> and they had like these little curly locks. Yes, like they were blonde. blonde and they were like, they looked very adorable. And they had the pool table was set up, the rug, they were finishing off the bar. And you and I happened to be down in the basement. And the workmen had left this huge, they'd gone to lunch, they left this huge um, vacuum 
that they were vacuuming stuff up work back. And all of a sudden I saw these two curly heads go by the pool table and go into the bar area and I heard them open the fridge. Now hold on. Now what did you tell them initially? What, why couldn't they open the refrigerator? I told them that they should never open the refrigerator because the small monster lived in there. <laughs> Didn't you describe it? Yes. I told them it was he fit perfectly in the fridge and he had big fangs and claws on his hands and that if you let him out he would go he would go after you. <laughs> okay. So they went down together and they never really collaborated on anything before. This was unusual. And they opened up that fridge and just as they did it, I turned on that work back, which made this <laughs> horrible huge noise. <laughs> <laughs> they let out blood curling screams. They saw the tops of their heads run by the pool table out of the basement. Well, they ran because you and I were standing there at the vacuum because we were in the laundry room and you heard them come in and you looked at me and you go, watch this. And you go over <laughs> and the vacuum was right next to the door. Right. So when they when they heard the noise, they thought it was a monster in the <laughs> yes, fridge and they ran right by us. <laughs> you can see us there. They ran. Oh, it was great. The vacuum was like, and they they were running, and uh, they ran all the way out into the backyard, and we had French doors going out to the backyard upstairs, and they were banging on the French doors, and I opened the door. You had to compose ourselves first. Yes, I opened the door, and I was very serious, and I said, don't tell me you opened that fridge door. (laughs) And they're crying, yes, yes. I said, you let him out. He's loose now. And they wanted to come in the house. And I said, no, it's still playtime. <laughs> and I scared them so badly that they wouldn't, in the beginning, they wouldn't even go down and go in and use the playroom that was made for you guys. I think I remember when it was done, you guys had to take him down and open the fridge. And yes, I had to show them the monster had left. <laughs> But the looks on their face and the tears and everything, oh my God, it was great. <laughs> it's like, I could still see them. Oh, yeah, no, that stuff stuck with me. I, ha- I have that same, whether I'm causing trouble on set or if I'm, <laughs> if I'm creating something for actors to react to. Well, you get, you know, when you're with children all the time, of course, today they probably say I'm like the worst mom, but I don't comprehend mothers that, feel like they gave birth to Jesus Christ practically that their child is so wonderful and they're going to do this and do that I find children fascinating for who they are as themselves I never felt that I wanted any of you to do anything that was my dream I always felt that as children you should be able to find what you like to do and what makes you happy and not put that kind of pressure. I mean, everybody's not going to be the top person in the world. Everybody's not the most brilliant person. And that's okay. You have other attributes. You have other things to give. You know, and I think it's very important to develop a personality of your own and to be social and to be able to talk to people. And I think the arts are very, very important for children. I think introducing them to painting, to drawing photography. I mean, that's all something that you can, you're not competing with anyone. It's, it's a skill that you can learn and you can love what you're doing. And you're not like looking for where's the gold cup. Mm -hmm. 
And then, you know, we did a lot of that growing up. Like, I, I remember as a kid, uh, I was either working with, dad, like, dad would help us sew our own uh, Halloween costumes. You know, mm-hmm. we would do, dad and I actually took our class, which was a wild thing that I took our classes as, like, what was that, like, 13 or 14? Yeah, you wanted to take our classes. You would see in the thing from the museum and I said to your dad um I want you to go to our classes with Michael and your father wasn't painting back then no and he was having he was he was in a very stressful job and he's like I you know I can't do that and you know I'm not I said you're doing it I signed you guys up you're going and that got him back into painting and the arts and it also got you into another creative avenue even though you actually went because you thought there would be nude women models (laughs) which there were which is a whole other story but the thing that i found that i took the most from that besides learning techniques that i still use today whether i'm storyboarding or drawing um i actually was in classes with other adults and i was a a young teen at equal footing with other adults Mm -hmm. which was like a wild experience because it was, they were adult education classes that I got into. Right. It was uh, Michael Dowling. He's a really good artist. He does installations and all kinds of stuff. And he is serious about what he, what he does. And the people that were taking these classes were artists. They were people that were studying under him. It wasn't like a child going to a cute little art class where you learn how to you know, water paint or whatever. These were people that were serious artists. And we're in that class to expand their talent. Mm-hmm. And it was a it was a wild experience because at that point uh, I learned how to communicate with adults as equals, which I ended up use, utilizing when I started to direct at a young age on sets. And I would have crew members that were twenty years older than I was, and I'm trying to a seem like I know what the fuck I'm doing, but B, also be able to speak a language where they felt like I was potentially an equal or someone that they could work with, which I, I feel like I learned a lot of that in those art classes. Sorry to interrupt, guys. I just wanted to take a quick moment to uh, promote our sponsor for this episode. Um, it is audible.com. Uh, I don't know how many of you guys are members of this yet, but Audible.com is a part of Amazon, and it's a place that you can go and download really amazing uh, audiobooks and uh, different audio programs. I think they do podcasts and stuff. Uh, Don't quote me on that. Um, But uh, it's a really cool service, and I've started to use it myself uh, because I wanted to start getting back into books, uh, and I've had a hard time reading books, actually sitting down and opening them and going through them because by the time I get to it at the end of the day, I go through reading like 10 pages and I fall asleep. And I find that if I'm listening to a book, I can have it on in the background and get through a lot of it faster. Um, And the production on these things is super awesome these days. They have really amazing voice actors doing stuff. They do music. Um, So it's, it's almost like listening to uh, like a Netflix series. Um, and I got really excited because I downloaded uh, one of the newer Stephen King books uh, called Dr. Sleep. And for those of you who don't know, Dr. Sleep is actually the sequel to The Shining. Yeah, I had no idea. And the only reason I found out was because I heard online that they were starting pre-production on a sequel to The Shining starring Ewan McGregor. So I happened to do the, a little bit of legwork, 
uh, and being completely out <laughs> of any sort of cultural news myself, it turns out that there was a sequel to The Shining. Um, and it's super cool, guys. Like, it, it picks up right after the events that happened at the Overlook Hotel. Um, we catch up with Danny and his mother, uh, and they've sort of retreated to Miami. Uh, and I don't want to give too much away, but uh, it's really cool. Turns out that Danny still has the ability to shine, regardless of whether or not he's at the Overlook. Uh, turns out that some of the spirits have followed him. Um, and the, the book itself is different than the movie, for those of you who haven't read it. Um, there's a whole lot of controversy about whether or not Stephen King, I think he hated the movie, uh, Stanley Kubrick's version, um, cause it changed a lot. Uh, but in the actual book, the cook from the hotel survives, uh, and he ends up becoming a bit of a mentor or further mentor with Danny and teaches him how to control these abilities. And it, there are other people in the world that have these same abilities and some of them are good and some of them are bad. Um, so it goes in a completely different direction, uh, but still seems to hold on to a lot of the same themes that the original book had. Uh, so it's a, a fascinating listen, actually. It's a really fascinating listen. A really great voice actor. Next episode, I'll get you his name and I'll put it on. But uh, he does like uh, different reads for different characters. So it's a lot of fun um, to listen to. So if you are interested in listening to this book along with me, um, go to audible.com backslash in love with the process. If you go there, I'm going to put a link below this. If you click on that link, you'll sign up and get a 30-day free trial. And with that free trial comes a credit for a free book. So you can get the book for free. Um, and I think I looked at how long it's, it's about an 18-hour listen to get that book. So Technically, if you're cheap and you don't want to pay for it, you can actually go sign up for free 30 days, get the book for free, listen to it. Uh, and if you end up canceling, we still get paid. So it doesn't make a difference to me whether or not you continue, but I know you will because you're going to get hooked with it. Um, it's really simple. You just download the book uh, either to your laptop or to your phone or to uh, whatever sort of mobile device you have. Um, I have it on my phone uh, and I listen to it with my noise canceling headphones, which, which makes it absolutely creepy really awesome um, to do. And sometimes I'm listening to it when I'm driving. Uh, the other day I had it on at the same time as I had the navigation on. And I found myself shutting the neg navigation off and getting lost because I was so into the book. <laughs> um, so if you are into this and you want to support the show and you don't want to reach into your own pocket to support the show, which I don't blame you, um, then sign up, go to audible.com backslash in love with the process. Uh, everybody that signs up, we get a bit of money. It helps me pay for bullshit like my Adobe subscription, my subscription to like SoundCloud, all that crap, which adds up. So please help us out. Go to audible.com backslash in love with the process. <laughs> We're back from our break. And now that we have a few other people in the house, we'll see if we actually hear them as they walk around and they eat. Right, Tina? Yeah, uh, quiet. <laughs> so let me uh, let me change gears a little bit sure. here. Um, so in one of the earlier episodes, I talked briefly about our family movie nights. Now you've always loved movies. You're actually the person that introduced me to a lot of, believe it or not, a lot of the violent films, right? Yeah, your dad introduced you to all the Godzilla movies. Yes, and you were fascinated with them. That was when you were his sidekick. And then I introduced you into all the violence. 
<laughs> what, what movies were we watching when I was, how old was I? I was probably like 12, 13. We went to the movies, just the two of us. And that was quite unusual that we got to go out, just you and I. And your father would be very upset with me because he's a nonviolent person. <laughs> and I would be taking you to Die Hard. That was the first. I don't know how, how old you were when Die Hard. That came out in the 80s, didn't it? Yeah. And your father just gave me that look. And I knew he wouldn't go with me. <laughs> and I said, Michael's 12. He's fine. He's not violent. We'll, we're going. And off we went and got popcorn. We were in Framingham. And you were fascinated. It probably leads to the to the reason why I have a bunch of like dirty white wife beaters. <laughs> <laughs> you were fascinated. You were hooked from that moment on. I had a partner in crime. Um, your siblings were too young to see those type of movies, and I had someone to take with me or rent. And you know, we saw all the Die Hard movies together. We the Lethal Weapons. We were crazy about those. Yeah. Um, the Indiana Jones movies, the kids were able to watch those. So we could watch those as a family. Um, I always love this. I was looking at that the other day, actually, the first Indiana Jones movie, because they sort of fit into kid-friendly radar until, <laughs> until the Nazis' faces start melting. <laughs> and that's just nightmare fodder at that point for anybody that watches it. Well, I grew, <laughs> I grew up watching um, horror movies. I grew up watching. I liked my first favorite movie was King Kong. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that movie. And then Mighty Joe Young came along, and um, you know, and I loved that. And then on television, um, they started showing women. They had this uh, detective series called Honey West. Oh, right. And it was uh, Anne Francis was the actress. She had a little mole on her face. And she had her own private detective agency, and she had a male sidekick. Usually back then, in any kind of movies or television, the woman was always the sidekick. So it was unusual that her the guy worked for her. And she wore these glamorous clothes, and she knew how to take someone down, you know, in, her, in an evening gown. Um, or they would go out at night to, like, check out some place, and she'd have the, all the black garb on. And, and, uh, and she had her own pet, I think it was a cheetah or something they had on the Did set. Did she have a cheetah? Yeah, some, either a cheetah or a leopard or something, and it was real. And I just was fascinated. That, that just you know, turned everything around for me as far as, you know, women didn't have to be the helpless victim. Because before that, women had a backseat to everything. So it was really, you know, I mean, I grew up on the, the, you know, Donna Reed and Leave it to Beaver and all that stuff, which really screwed with the minds of people my age because they presented life as a family that was so fake that you looked at your own family and thought, what's wrong here? Because most families are dysfunctional on some level. Yeah. So it gave you this, you know, like, un- you know, here's, I never saw my mother with pearls and a dress on vacuuming in my whole life. Right. And here she is, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, what is this? So I got into the action. I, I liked action. I, it's really bizarre that I like James Bond. Because that's a very macho. Always like Sean Connery. Oh, yeah. I read all the books Ian Fleming wrote, and I was fascinated with them. 
And when the movies came out, I was, I loved Sean Connery. And when I look back as an adult and see how they treated women and the names of them and everything, but I just liked the action, mm. you know, and I enjoyed it. You know, the guy with the hat, odd job. Oh, right, right. Yeah. He was in, uh, he was in Goldfinger, right? Wasn't yes. that Goldfinger? Yeah, Goldfinger was unbelievable. Yeah, and James Bond's movies in general have been, I mean, now they're even, they're great too. Like, you like the new ones, right? With Daniel Craig? Yeah, I do. I The only James Bond I liked before Daniel Craig was Sean Connery. All the others that stepped in, they just didn't have it. And Sean Connery got that job. He was a theater type actor and he got the job and I don't know which one was the first. I don't know if Goldfinger was the first movie, but once it came out, it made a fortune. Oh, no, wasn't the one on the island the first one that he did? Could have been Dr. No. Dr. No, yeah. And he decided that he didn't want to do anymore. And this was back, what, in the 60s? -hmm. And he was sleeping on Shirley Winters, an actress's couch. He didn't even have his own place. And she said to him, why don't you ask for a million (laughs) dollars? And he said, okay. And they gave it to him. And that's how he stayed in the franchise for as long as he did, because they paid him really well. I think it's funny how much movie movie trivia that you actually know about. It's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So then you have loved movies for a long time. And then um, I started to bring you onto my sets. Um, Actually, I started, we started with photography first. You started to come and work with me on the photo shoots. Yes. Um, and one of the reasons why I like to bring people around like family or our friends that really don't work in the business is because I like to get that outside perspective while you're sort of caught in the whirlwind of the stress and drama that whatever the production is that's creating. And I think it's really nice to have an outside perspective. Well, I think with photography, the thing that's interesting about photography is you can have three people take the same shot. You can have three people take the same picture of a person and the eyes are different on what each person will take. Yeah. You know, someone might take a full length shot of the person. I would take a close up shot of the person. Another person might take, um, you know, make them move or do something, but it's photography is very underrated you know, it's like, oh, anyone can take pictures. You have uh, cell phones. You can do that. Yeah, anyone can take pictures, but not anyone can take a really good picture. Right. You know, um, and to be able to do that, you know, you ha- to have the eye and to be able to see things in a certain way that nobody else sees it and you capture it and people are surprised because they literally saw that and now they see your photograph and it's like, wow, I didn't even notice that. It's perspective. Right. It's just that you're drawn in. At least I am. You're drawn into the person. So when I went on shots with photo shoots with you, I was always more fascinated with who the subject was. Like when you did the steampunk. Mm-hmm. That's right. We did the steampunk Yeah, shoot when you did that shot, I was like, wow, this is, this is different. I didn't even know what that was. And oh, like that whole scene, yeah. Yeah, I didn't understand what it was. And then he explained it, and he was into it and fascinated, and you did all the smoke and you did all the stuff, but it really didn't matter with the smoke and all that. What you actually captured was him. He was a little nerd, remember? He was very odd. Yeah. And he was nervous, and you captured him as he played a role. 
steampunk is like they're playing in my estimation you're they're putting on a facade and once he got into that role he was a different person and he you photographed him and it was like wow this isn't the person that was talking five minutes ago (laughs) then there was the photo shoot for the phoenix the one where um it was like a fashion oh the end of the world fashion shoot yes and of course, I got in trouble on some of your photo shoots. Yes, yes, often. <laughs> <laughs> often. Uh, well, this one, I remember going, and um, there was a stylist there who kind of thought he... Was kn- running the show. show. And kind of thought he knew what was best. And you were cranking out photos, and you would send them over to me and your assistant, Tony, and you'd ask our advice. And I looked at the photos, and they were horrible. I was like, goodness, what's yeah. going on here? Well, and I to interrupt, I knew. So basically the setup was I was hired to do a, a cover shoot. I used to work for the Boston Phoenix, and they used to bring me in to do, back when they still existed, they used to bring me in to do the high-concept photo shoots. So they'd have me come in and do like really high-end, uh, like very high-concept, mm-hmm. very well-lit kind of stuff. And I had never done fashion. Right. I had always just done like cinematic sort of portraiture. And so they were taking a risk by having me come in and do fashion stuff. So but they, you got, you kind of got intimidated, which I was surprised. Yeah. And this guy thought he knew best. And these were really flat pictures. I mean, I looked at them and... They sucked. They were horrible. And I remember you having you lean down into me and I said to you, these are terrible pictures, Michael. And your eyes got real big. And I said, look, you're not a fashion photographer. They didn't hire you to be a fashion photographer. They hired you for your eye and your creativity. Stop listening to that guy and take pictures the way you take them. I remember I remember like the empowerment, the charge that I got out of that because I was so frustrated with everything that was going on. I have clients breathing down my neck and looking at the images and you were just like, screw them. Shoot it the way you'd shoot it. I remember taking the subjects off of the backdrop that they had. Remember, I took them over to the wall, mm-hmm. changed the way that the light was, changed the way that the color was, and instantly, within 15 minutes, had the shots that I have been published over and over again. Yeah, they were fabulous. They were really, really fabulous shots. And it was like, you know, they knew they hired you for your talent. And all of a sudden, it's very easy. When you have a talent and you're doing stuff and people that don't have that talent and I'm not putting them down, but suddenly they step up and think they know what's best. Mm -hmm. It's like, as much as I like your dad, at times he would step, I took photos. I did weddings for a while and that in itself is, you know, you need like, you need like five drinks after you're done. (laughs) And one wedding I took was, um, his uh, cousin, and she married um, an Indian guy, and they had two ceremonies. Now, I think he was Hindu. I think Hindus don't drink. It was, in a, it was in a mansion in Waltham. So there was no alcohol anywhere except for the ones that went out to the parking lot and opened their trunk and drank there. But anyways, she had two full ceremonies, and I took film. I took 10 rolls of uh, 36 photos in each row. So I took 360 photos in one day, mm-hmm. loading the camera, reloading the camera. And your father was trying to help assist when he could, but he couldn't help at some point stepping in and trying to say, well, you should take it this way. 
you should just, and I said, no, that's not, and the beginning I was nice. I was like, no, that, that's okay. But then he got more insistent. And it, finally I had to say to him, you're just my assistant. <laughs> just give me another roll of film out of that bag. <laughs> he didn't, and he stepped back because he's used to peop, certain people that are <clears throat> used to being in charge, <clears throat> excuse me, will step up when they really shouldn't. Right, right, right. And to clarify, too, you weren't professionally taking photographs. Like, you were asked to take these photographs by people, and you were playing around with that for a little while, but you've never really been in the professional... No, I did three or four weddings that I was asked to do. Right. And um, I have to admit, I wish I kept some of them. The Indian wedding, I mean, they had... It wasn't a sarong. She had a designer did this unbelievable, it looked like Gone with the Wind, but it was sort of sequins dress. And the bridesmaids, one of the bridesmaids was an Indian actress, and they were gorgeous women. Yes. They were apps, and the photos were amazing. I think out of 360, I might have had 40 that weren't that great. Wow. And, and I did both ceremonies. And it was fascinating because um, Tony, who asked me to do it, she told me to do it however I wanted to do it. So, that so then she liked your work previously. Yes, she had seen all my stuff, and she did not want the typical line people up photos. I was basically taking photos of the wedding party, uh, the, in, the intimate family. I wasn't doing for that. I wasn't doing the strict, you know, get the tables and all that stuff. It was more... They had a bedroom upstairs that had a canopy bed, and I took pictures of the girls dressing, mm -hmm. and they had the big hoops under and all this stuff. So it was it was very artsy photos. And when was this? Like, what year was this? Oh, God. This was probably... Your kids were children. It was probably in the 80s or... Which was a which was like a very sort of new way of doing that back then. Nowadays, there's a formula for for wedding photographers where they sort of do the whole get people dressed and follow people around. And no, you're shooting this wasn't. Digitally. No, this wasn't like that. This was like I sat in the room and I looked. They were doing what they had to do, and I would just say, "Oh, that looks interesting," and pick up my camera. So, like true documentary. Yeah, it was not like let me hang the the wedding dress up over the window and take <laughs> right. a picture of right. it, right. Right. or any of the you know. Oh, I. At that point, you're at least if I was hiring a photographer, I'd be hiring somebody to capture the people around me during that day that I am so busy that I don't have the time to see or or to be involved with, to actually see the emotion and see what is happening in those things. The whole stagey kind of shit, it's, it's just fucking fake. At that no. point, it's, you're not actually getting what is what is happening because everybody, it's like taking selfies at this point. They spend so much time erasing out what, who their personality you know what? is. You're not royalty, okay? <laughs> You're getting married. You're not. It's not the wedding in England. You don't need... I went to a wedding where they had two videographers. Is that how you say it? Yeah. And like two photographers. And it's like, okay, this is not going to be on the 9 o'clock news or the 5 o'clock news. You should really be taking pictures of what this day means to you. Right. And the wedding party is fun to take pictures of, especially the women... Um, the second wedding I did, she was very shy, the bride, uh, she was from England and 
they she wore a 1920s silk type dress and nobody wore that back then like they do now and again it was for tony and she got tool tony got tool and made the veil herself so and tony was a painter and an artist and i took the photos for them and they came out fabulous and because it was it was creative it wasn't staged you know it was like i wasn't like okay you two come on and stand over here it was more like, oh, look, they look kind of nice over there. Just, you know, stop for a second. Let me take a photo. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, all the weddings I've gone to, uh, all the photos I've ever seen of weddings have been horrible. We, your friend did for me for your sister's wedding. And she was surprised that I didn't want pictures at the house. <laughs> she was surprised that I didn't want pictures at the table. We basically just took pictures of the immediate family and the wedding party. And yes, they were put together and posed, but it was it was fun because we had this we hadn't had snapshots of ourselves and they were basic. She did a great job and it was like done done done. Yeah. It, it was, was like event. you know, it was none of these, oh, let's everybody hold the groom up or let's hold the surfboard up or Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't surf, but this will look good in my picture. <laughs> Uh, well, you have had a reputation, uh, at least around the people that I work with. Everybody loves to hang out with you on the sets that you're always, whenever I, whenever you're able to come by our sets. And you've been on, I think you've been on all my movie sets, right? Yes, I've been on, I think the, I, I remember one, before your movie set, I remember one of the rock videos. Oh, were you on one of the music videos? Yeah, I went to, I don't know who the, they, it was funny. Because you told them to bring two choices for pictures. That was the one with the lights oh, in the background. Oh, yeah. The band Diecast, I did a, a photo shoot for those. Yes. Guys. And it was a photo shoot. That's right. And yeah. I went in the room where they were all sitting. And one of the band members, I don't know which one it was. He was heavy set, And he... He was a lead singer. He lead singer. <laughs> yes. He took out two shirts that were black that looked exactly the same. <laughs> and I'm like thinking... And of course time because i had you know been a mom of kids uh, and i hadn't been out in the work world for a long time i was saying things that were on my mind <laughs> it's not so, very not, not, not very, very quiet about your opinions no and he had somebody get him something from burger king he had this bag with like two or three huge humongous burgers and they brought him in and i said to him something like why are you eating that <laughs> And he kind of looked at me and he said, well, I am trying to lose weight. I said, it's not your weight. It's how unhealthy that food is you're eating. And at the time, Ben, your uh, assistant, had gone on a diet and lost weight. Yeah. And was eating all this healthy stuff. Right. And I called him into the room. (laughs) And the guy's munching on the burger. And I said, look at Ben. (laughs) Ben's like looking at me. I said, Ben was eating like that not too long ago. And now he changed in his healthy diet. Ben, you should tell him what you're doing. And Ben got sat down and the guys got in. And you were, you were called me out of the room. And I thought, okay, now I'm going to get yelled at again. But they ended up in this really great conversation. And at the end, he was comfortable with himself. Yeah, no, it worked out. It I was out. concerned. I'm like, what are you doing? I'm about to take a photograph of this guy. And you're telling him he looks fucking fat. <laughs> No, he told me he was fat while he's eating the burgers. And I'm like, if you don't want to be like that, why don't you get healthy? Yeah, 
Yeah. <laughs> um, what was the, uh, so you were on, you were on the 12 km set, right? What did you think of that one? Well, that was an interesting set. I only, you wanted me for two days and I wasn't feeling well. Right. Uh, I had a lot of fun because you had your dad in that. Oh, right. Dad was in that. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I get bored easily. And I found it fascinating. We were there for two days. You know, we came back and you had your father as a professor in the background. He didn't have to speak. But the people around him, for him to know what the cues were, were very difficult because they were all speaking Russian. And he's got the glasses on. And, and of course, he's the type of person, the type A, and he's a wonderful person. But he likes to do everything perfect. So when you gave him the little white jacket, for the scientist, I said to him, you know, you just need that little badge and you could be the CVS pharmacy guy. <laughs> Before we start filming. Yes. Make him feel comfortable, you know. So, I didn't know you told him that. Yeah. I said, either that or you look like a dentist. <laughs> so. No wonder why he was like, yeah, adjusting so. his shirt. And then... um. Your, our best friend Jack was in it, and he had the workman's jumpsuit, the one piece, and it really wasn't comfortable on him. <laughs> He's like pulling the crotch down, trying to get comfortable, and he was getting his, they were making him up, and he's a kind of the kind of guy that you he would never let you do anything with. And um, you wanted me to take some photos, and I had my camera, and I went to take his picture, and I don't know why I have such a bad reputation, but he was, oh, yeah, now you're going to show it to my family. I said, no, 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 if you don't want your picture taken, I never take photos if people don't want it done. Right. I said, that's not my style. So anyways, the set was great. There were all these guys. That it was a unbelievable grouping of actors and crew. Everybody was eager, and here we are in this dark, dreary place. Yeah, always, damp, always shooting in a piece of shit warehouse. Damp, somewhere. cold, and I was coming every day. I brought cookies, and they'd all run over for the chocolate chip cookies. I didn't make them, of course. I bought them. I'm not that kind of mom. But um, when Dad, when you were filming your father, you called me down. I tried not to get in the way and stayed in the back background. And you called me down and wanted me to look at some of the film footage. And you had stopped filming. And your father was nervous. And he's walking back and forth. And he's like, what's going on? What's going on? He said, it's so hard for me, you know. I'm trying to, like, figure out when I'm supposed to just move forward and turn these knobs. And I said, what's wrong is Michael had to stop filming because you keep fucking up. <laughs> Which was not true at all. <laughs> and his eyes looked like somebody shot him. <laughs> And I started laughing hysterical. And then I said, I'm only kidding. But you know, it was the best thing to do for him. Because <laughs> yeah. it made, it, he got to feel his worst fear, but it wasn't true. Yeah, right. <laughs> right? He's, so like, then, he's like, am I doing bad? What are you talking? I had no idea that you guys were having this conversation. <laughs> I'm like, you're fine. <laughs> like, I'm doing to deal with, with all these other extras. <laughs> like, relax. <laughs> yeah. Well, I thought it would just take the edge off for him. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I was I always get envious on uh, my film sets because I don't when you're when you're directing you're kind of in this sort of stress ball in the front trying to run the show and I sets are this weird little carny event where you have all these little pockets of strange people that normally never get to hang out with each other and you're sort of combining all these different elements and if you walk through a film set 
It sounds like I'm a Jurassic Park with the birds in the background. Uh, but if you walk through a film set, um, you can go on all these really cool little adventures. Is there any stories that you remember from any of my film sets of people that you talked to that you thought were interesting? Well, in 12K, you picked guys that had very interesting faces. Right. That could look Russian or foreign or whatever. And there was one guy who had like a big head. You know, big. He had, he was like an odd proportioned body, and you know they were sitting in these folding chairs for hours because on a film set it's sitting, 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 sitting. Yeah. And then five minutes of filming, and then sitting, sitting. And I brought cookies and stuff, and you had food, and I sat down and started talking to him, and he had something called giantitis, I think it is. Where his features, his that's why his head was bigger. Yeah. And he was fascinating. Here he was in all this pain because what happens is things get too large inside your body. Sometimes your organs can. But he wanted so badly to be on that film. He was a sweetheart. And he never complained to anyone. I mean, he and I had this conversation and he was a really, really great guy. And I found it fascinating. I thought, wow. I can't imagine living with that kind of, you know, and the minute you said action, he was right out there, one of the miners doing his part and coming back and like, oh, I hope that was good. And, and I met some interesting um, makeup artists that were very patient with people and do stuff. And basically, it was mostly, it was a male cast. So it was a great vibe on the set. There was no prima donnas. There was nobody. Mm-hmm. And in, and it was such a close, uh, out of all your movies, it was such a close set. Everybody wanted this to work. And that's what I got out of it. I got out of it like everybody's really trying hard. And I also had fun with Gina. She was doing, taking great photos. Mm-hmm. And I have that one where I'm strangling your father photo to have forever. <laughs> <laughs> Did she frame that for you guys? Yes, I have it in the bedroom so he'll never forget. <laughs> There's your CVS jacket. <laughs> but uh, no, I always find your sets interesting because it's it's people that from all different walks of life, and I know that sounds corny, that come together to make something. Yeah, They're all there to make something, whether they're providing the food whether they're the PRs, is it, no, PAs running around, whether they're making the construction, um, and they're all dedicated to what they're doing because they're not getting paid a lot of money. They're giving up their time because they love the art of making movies, whether they want to. Uh, I met Ari. Or Ara. I probably mispronounced everything. No, that's um, fine. Ara. Ara. He's he was fascinating because he was translating. Yep. Um, and he's an amazing actor. Yep. Um, What'd you think of the old guy, the professor? He was unbelievable too. He, he was, was quite a guy to work for. Or worth. He reminded me of like a stage actor. Yeah, he yeah. was. He was a stage. Was actor. Was he a stage actor? Yeah, from Russia. Um, Ernst Ernst Zorin was his name, and he. We found him cast, well, no, Ara knew him from New York, and he, apparently there's a section of New York where there's a bunch of Russian plays. I think it's like outside theater or something. I'm going to totally fuck that up. But uh, he had known him from there, and apparently Ernst was a big-time actor from Russia. 
that had migrated to the U.S. And the big problem with a lot of uh, Russian actors is that most parts for them in film and TV are like bad guys. You know, it's like... Gangsters. You're a gangster. You're like a car driver. And so I, I really made a smart decision accidentally by having them be uh, Russian speaking because then I had access to this fantastic talent that was like, oh my God, this is a part that isn't a Russian gangster. Yes, I want to do this thing. I'm interested in doing it. Um, but he was old school. He was old school Russian. And he was looking at me as sort of this American kid. And he's like, what the fuck do you know about Russian shit? So he spent a lot of time challenging me on set, which was a big deal. Uh, we eventually got on on point. I remember, I, I think I've said the story before. I remember turning to the translator who was this cute little girl who was doing all the translations for me and we're both having these arguments in different languages. And I said to her, translate this directly. Tell him to do it because I fucking said so. And as soon as she did that, he looked at me and went, okay. And had, there was like this level of respect. <laughs> well, he was, he, he thought, you know, he, I mean, to be an actor is, uh, you have a lot of insecurities. You're putting your life in the hands of a lot of people. It's all about trust, 100%. And, right. And he's probably thinking, oh, my God, if this thing is really bad and I'm trying to break in to American film, you know, this could kill me. Right. And, you know, he is thinking about a lot of the logistics from a Russian standpoint. And I kept, he finally got it. I kept trying to explain to him, the audience is American. The audience is m me. And so a lot of American audiences won't understand a lot of these nuances, so it isn't as important. The most important thing is that emotionally we get what it is that your story is. Emotionally, we understand what your motivations are. Uh, that is so much more important. And then we can texture it with... He had some great lines. He had the line about... Uh, uh, the. He inserted a, uh, an improv line about the Russian astronaut. Like He had some really fantastic stuff that went in, but... It just took him a, a couple of days to sort of warm up to the fact that... Well, he was old enough to be your grandfather. Yeah. Yeah, and he's taking direction from a young kid. Right. Yeah. yeah. And he's thinking, oh, you know, it sounded good, but maybe it isn't so good now. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, I, I really enjoyed being on that set. I really enjoyed all the people and seeing the energy level and how everybody was trying to contribute. And I also enjoyed... Um, well, the first film I was on with you was that film you made on the Cape. Which which film was that? That was the girl I had to pick up from South Africa. Oh yeah, that was my. I got I got out of film school and came back home and made my first uh, short film, and that was about the woman that uh, they thought was dead, but she wakes up in the in the morgue, and it turns out that the mortician was a creep. <laughs> yes, yeah, so one of your really twisted, sicko type movies. Yes. <laughs> And you I got, wonder where I got it from. <laughs> you got this. You got this young actress. Is she living out in Framingham or something? She was originally. She was from South Africa. Yeah, I think she was from the same area that Charlize Theron was from. Yep, and she was very attractive. And you had me pick her up at some the railroad station, Wellesley or something, and drive her down. <laughs> Which is a calculated move. I didn't want to be the creepy guy that went and picked up this girl. And I said to her, "Does anyone know where you're going?" You know, do you have any family or any people? Or, and she's like, oh, yeah. And, and, she, and, uh, and I said to her, you know, and she's like, well, who are you? And I said, I'm Michael's mother. Usually I don't tell people that. And I said, if you need anything at all, you have any issues, tell me. And you were filming in this horrible hubble again. Mm -hmm. And 
she was in a bathrobe most of the time mm-hmm. and then in the tub. Yeah, we had a bath, we had no running water and we had a bathtub that had sternos, like little cooking sternos underneath it, mm-hmm. remember, to keep the water warm. And there was no bathroom for the use and she proceeded to tell me that she had her period. Oh, right. Yep. And I said to her, okay, don't worry, this will be taken care of. So Ben, who was your... Uh, Production designer at yeah. the time. He had the duty of taking her to the gas station bathroom every so often. <laughs> Poor thing. She'd get out of that wet tub. She must have been freaking out about that. And she she was, she was, said, thank you very much. And I said to her, if there's anything else you need, just let me know because your needs come first. That's right. Yeah, because she was the only girl on the film, wasn't she? Yeah, it was all young guys. And yeah. luckily, none of them knew about, because I'm sure half those guys wouldn't know how to handle any of that. Mm. Poor Ben. Ben, I just pulled Ben aside. You said, go tell Ben. And I pulled Ben aside and his eyes got real big when I said period. Because, you know, guys don't talk about that. <laughs> I'm like, she's got, when she needs to go, you got, you have to take her. <laughs> He's like, okay, okay. <laughs> we were young back then. That was, mm-hmm. well, what was I, like 23 maybe? Something like that? Yeah. That was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And you filmed in a house up the street. So that was the first film. I was in on with you, you know, and then your latest film after 12 K was very interesting. Oh, the new one that I haven't released the title for yet. Yes. I, well, I forget things. So you're lucky. I'm not going <laughs> to give it away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There was, that again was a really great crew. You have a lot of good friends in, um, the, um, filmmaking business and they, when they commit, they really commit. And they're all serious. It's not a party atmosphere till the film's over. And they're all serious about what they're doing, and they're all enthusiastic, and they're excited. And and it's nice. There's a, a high level of energy on your sets, which is really great. You go in there, and you see all these active, for me, you see all these active young people, and they're all committed, and and they're not jerks. They're not assholes. They're no prima donnas. There's, you know. It's nice. I mean, at the end of the day, I try to create an atmosphere that's a lot of fun for everybody to, to experience because a lot of these people aren't getting paid. So why the fuck would you want to work for a dictator and be in a dictatorship? It should be fun. There should be direction and purpose. Um, and everybody should understand what the film is going to be. But it's a fun experience. It's well, supposed I know. to be fun. In 12K, you had a few issues. Oh, with which ones? Didn't somebody with their license or their... Oh, yes. Oh, my production designer got arrested. <laughs> and I needed him on set that day, but he got arrested because he didn't renew his fucking driver's license. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Someone tapped on my shoulder while I'm trying to do a shot going, uh, so he's been arrested? <laughs> <laughs> then there was the um, costume person. Oh, hurt the her ward, foot. She, yeah, she was stepping out of the house. She was a trooper. She stepped out of the house and fell and... Uh, I think she broke her ankle mm-hmm. and she called me crying, hysterically crying that she couldn't get to set. Um, and I was like, it's just a movie, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll find the clothes. We'll put them on people. Like, I wish you were here, but it's a movie. Go do your thing. And she ended up going to the doctors and then she called me back. She goes, I'm screwed, but I want to be there. And I said, how about this? How about we get you a wheelchair and I get you a PA and they just wheel you around and you don't get up and they just handle everything. And she, she showed up. She yeah, she also guy. sent a replacement That's right. before she got there. And then your sister tried to help out, too. That's right. Yeah, she tried to jump on as well. Yeah, so everyone, you know, everyone seems to be enthusiastic and eager and 
And it's great. It's it's hard at first when you're on a movie set because I love movies so much, and it's really hard when you go behind the scenes and see how it's made. Right. If, you're, if you're not careful, it can take away all the magic. Very true. You know, um, but instead, it it made me more interested. It was like, wow, look at this person. Look how they're acting. And um, I was very impressed with you and how you do treat people. You don't you make it a collaborative effort. You're um, willing to listen to what somebody has to say or if they want to film in a different way or they want to add something to it, you're willing to try it. Well, thanks. You know, yeah. and it's not being with someone who's like, okay, this is my life. This is my film. I sweated all this out. and All of you people better step to my tune. I've worked for enough people to do that. And I've said this before, I was lucky enough to go on other sets from filmmakers like the Farley Brothers, where they ran sets like I run sets, or I run sets like they run sets, because I had seen it, and I had seen how wonderful their experience was and how much fun these folks have. You know, like him or hate him, Adam Sandler apparently does the same thing. His sets are supposedly absolutely a blast to be on, and he hires all his friends, <clears throat> all his high school buddies. Um, and so, you know... I. This is, you want to make a good movie, and at the end of the day, you get judged for a movie. So you're, the, an audience nowadays, they don't really give a fuck how you made it. They don't care who worked on it. They watch it and they go, did it make me feel good? You know, And it's like this sort of instant gratification that you're, you're dishing out. And if all I'm doing it for is for their gratification, then I'm, my life's going to be pretty miserable. And if I'm concerned about that and I'm a dictator trying to make a movie to, to appeal to that, then my life's going to suck. And I think that making sure that you're uh, working with folks that you enjoy, making sure that you put people on your sets. There is no rule saying that you're not allowed to have family members on your set. There's no rule saying that you're not allowed to have friends on your set. There's no rule that says everybody there has to be prof like a professional. Um, and I think it, if you're making movies that you want people to enjoy, uh, it, it's important to have people around you that don't Aren't can, aren't obsessed over the the actual art of making a movie or the techniques over making a movie, and are just people that watch films, because it's it's valuable for me to have you sitting at the monitor like on the last movie, where you're just sort of sitting there at the monitor watching a performance, and I can be out there working with the actor and then quietly come into the room that you're in and go, you watched that scene, what did you think, and how did that feel to you? Because you're a moviegoer, you're mm -hmm. someone that loves movies, and I wasn't necessarily looking to you to tell me how to direct it. I no, was you wanted to know what my reaction was exactly. to that scene. And I've now learned to keep my voice lower. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Don't make sure that the actors don't know. No, I don't. That. Well, the thing is that all these people that work on these, on your sets all have talent. They're all talented. It's not like you've brought in, Oh, it's a, it's like a boys club. It's like, we're going to have fun. This is a party atmosphere. Everyone once the production's underway. Everybody's serious about what they're doing. Yeah. They know what their jobs are. If they have an issue, you're approachable. You know, you're not uh, some demigod that they have to like, Oh, watch out. He's going to be mad at me. Um, but they're serious about what they do and they're dedicated to what they do. And they want you to succeed because if you succeed, they succeed. That's the trick. You know, and their name goes on it as well as yours, and it might not be in the biggest print, but it's there. Mm -hmm. And they want to be able to work on sets, and they want to be able to do this stuff. So for them, you know, it's 
a horrible job in a way because it's very monotonous. Yeah. You know, people think, oh, you go on, it's action and one scene or maybe two scenes you shoot and then you move on and it's like like picking up a camera and taking a series of shots. It's not. It's setting up the sets. It's making sure everything is the same as it was in the last shot. Uh, Continuity. Yes, all that stuff. And then, and then it's just after a while, it becomes you're in a cave-like atmosphere, most of your films are. <laughs> and you kind of have that, you know, if it, if it hadn't had, if it doesn't have any levity on set, it would be like a prison hmm. atmosphere. It'd be like you're in the cave with all these people. And, you know, and if you, had so, if you had people around you that were real jerks and mean to other people on the set, then you have to deal all of a sudden, you're not dealing with your movie anymore. You're dealing with someone else's problems. I've always said that you can tell when you watch a movie, you can feel whether or not they had fun making it. And if you, there are certain movies that, that I've seen that you go, oh, it just feels like, oh, it feels weird. It feels very odd and feels off. And then you read about the behind the scenes and it's like, oh my God, this person was an asshole. Or this actor was a drama queen or there was this thing going well, on. Well, I'm always surprised when you have an actor that you really like. Like I like Bruce Willis. Yep. And then you see him in a movie by somebody else, not going to mention names or anything. And the performance is terrible. Yep. And you know he's a decent actor. You know he is, you know, this is his craft. This is what he's doing. And you think, okay, what the heck was going on? You never know. And there's a lot of tabloid stuff that comes out uh, because everybody loves to, you know, pull down their icons. You know what I mean? We like to pull people off the pedestal that we put them on. But at the end of the day, it's really about that collaboration. Like for every bad movie he's in, he'll work with a director like Wes Anderson or he'll work with M. Night Shyamalan. And he does amazing stuff with those guys. I think it really just depends on who you have on your team and whether or not he trusts you as as an artist. And it's like um, Brad Pitt and Angela Jolie, where they were in that movie, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, was it? Yep. And they were each assassins and they didn't know it. That was Doug Lyman that directed that one. Yeah, and it was it, it. The chemistry was terrible between the two of them. I mean, yeah. Later on, you found out they were having an affair, so you think there would have been better chemistry, but it was so flat that movie. Yeah, it's it's a miracle. You I mean you've seen all the details that go into it? Like it for a movie to become for a shitty movie to get done, it's a fucking miracle for a, for a real crappy movie to get done. But for a movie that is magical. There are those magic moments that happen on set where everything just sort of kind of finds its way and the producers are doing an amazing job lining everything up and the actors are on point and the crew's on point. Because all it takes is just a little caught, like a little a, a little crack in, in the foundation of it. And then that crack just and shatters the whole movie. Um, so You can tell on some movies that the actors are phoning it in. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't they're not really into it. They need the money, whatever's going on, you know, and then you can tell when they're really into the movie. Yeah. I mean, there's been some there's been some really great movies out there. You know, Tarantino opened up a whole different world when he he took violence to a level that nobody ever thought you could put on a screen. Yep. Um, you know, and you look at all the films that are made 
because of people's visions or dreams. And then at the same time, you're at home on cable trying to find something to watch. And you're like, how the heck did that movie ever get made? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a weird business. It's like, and it's horrible. Yeah. And it went straight, you know, it was out in the theaters for maybe a month and then boom, it's on cable. It's a very weird business. It's, it's a strange like, thing. You know, I mean, who ever thought of that horrible storyline? It's a it's a magical thing that, you know, they try to monetize and try to create a structure that creates these things, but the truth of it is is that it's oftentimes out of your control. Um but that's cool. So I'm happy that we got to talk about this stuff. Um you're uh, it, like I said, you always have a great perspective on the sets. You always have an interesting perspective with folks. I well, think your always, fascination with people is interesting. Yeah, it's like that photo shoot you did with the um, lesbian dance troupe. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, that, yeah. Down at, what was it? It was a dance studio. You were doing the photo for the cover of the DVD. Yes. And the woman who did the doc was a lesbian. Yes. And you had me go with you. And um, they were dressed up. In costumes. I remember one was like German with the big blonde braids and everything. And you were taking the pictures and, and I thought these don't, the pictures don't look right. And you, <laughs> I forgot you, about this. Yeah, yeah. And you said to me, okay, move people around. Well, I literally started moving them like they were chess pieces and you're like, you know, you can't do that. And I'm like, okay, can you go here? Can you go there? And I stood back and I said, this looks much better. And the uh, director of the doc said, you just match them all up with their real life partners. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> and I said, "Well, it's a good photo now." <laughs> all right. Well, we're getting uh, we're getting close for about an hour and a half. This is a good episode. Um, is there? Let me say, how about this? I want to leave you with something. You don't have anything to plug, so you're not plugging anything that you're working on. No, I'm not. I don't do anything now. I'm just, <laughs> I, I lost interest in my photography. Oh, the, come on. We're going to do some shooting. We're going to be going on a trip in a month. So we're going yeah, to be shooting hopefully. I'm, I'm not. What I think I lost my interest because where I'm living is a lot of scenery. Oh, right. Because you're, you're down here on the Cape at this yes, point. Yes, I'm a people person. And, it, and it's really hard to photograph only people in their 70s and 80s on the beach all the time. <laughs> yeah, or trees. <laughs> yes. Your father would be like, oh, that's a great scenery shot. Well, we'll be traveling together soon. and We'll be able to take some shots. Yeah. Um, well, you know what? How about this? What? After we talked about, you know, the whole first half of the episode was about being a, a mom. Like, if there was any advice that you would give to a new mother, what would it be? Or a woman that was going to have a baby. Like a young woman that was going to have a baby. Don't become competitive. Women lie about raising kids. They lie about that, oh, you know, when I gave birth, I looked at my child and I instantly fell in love. It doesn't happen that way all the time. I'm sure it does for some people. There's a whole, in my estimation, there's a whole group of young mothers out there have made motherhood into a competition. And I feel... Like, if you can raise your children differently from everybody else, and I don't mean like in an odd way and lock them up in the basement kind of thing, but if you can look at your child and think what they need and what they like and not run with the pack, not feel like that they have to take the same sports, that they have to have be driven around in the van all day and they have to go to these activities and they have to go to this school and they have to go you're spending all your time micromanaging them 
and playing it like it's a business instead of it being a child. If you're lucky enough to have a child, then you should be looking at your child and saying, I have a very unique person here right now. There's no stamp on them. They're brand new. Yes, they are born with a personality. They are born with traits and stuff. But why am I going to make them part of the herd? Because in life, you have natural abilities. There are people that are a natural athlete. They take to painting. They take to photography. Everybody has something in them that is different from everyone else. And when you take your child like a piece of clay and you mold it into what everybody else is doing. God forbid they should be different and not, you know, and not look like everybody else. They're going to be shunned. They're not going to, no. You want to raise someone who is able to socialize and have empathy for people. Not always be thinking about, I'm number one, I'm the best, I should have this. That they're able to look at someone or another child and say, wow, this person's not having a good day. Maybe I should go over and say hello. Maybe we should ask her or him to come over and be part of who we are. So what you're saying is, is that it's better to understand that your child is a unique individual. individual. Look at him or her. Watch what they do. Not like, you know posting photos every day on a site saying, oh, look at my kid, look at the film footage, look at this. They're not the royal family. Again, it's not, how many photos do you need? Exactly. You know, look at your child, figure out who they are, what they like to do, what makes them happy, and have that stuff available. Don't make them do it, but have that stuff available. Let them try different things. And if they don't want to play the sports, they don't want to do that, you didn't. We made you try sports. Mm-hmm. Your feet never left the floor in basketball. I fucking hated that game. <laughs> it was like your sneakers were nailed to the floor. I fucking hated that game. And when it was over, you said to me, I said, you have to finish it because I believed in that. And you said, I don't ever want to play it again. And what did I say? Yep. You didn't, you didn't force me to do it. I said, nope, you have to try something, but you don't like it. No problem. Yep. So if you have a kid today and you want them to like you, You want your children, when they grow up, to want to come home and see you and seek your advice and stuff. Don't dictate their whole life. They have little minds. They have their own ideas. They should be able to be the unique person they're supposed to be. That's good. I think that's great advice. I think that's a great way to end the show. I appreciate you finally being on the episode. It will never get me again. (laughs) (laughs) It's fun to talk to you. It is. uh, Thank you for having me down, me and Gina down this week. Well, now let's go out and get some mudslides. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and on that note, I think that is the end of the episode. Thank you, everybody, for listening.